welcome to the Pastured Pig Podcast, where we share the successes and challenges of raising pigs on pasture. We talk to producers all over the country, from small homesteads to large commercial pasture operations. Whether you're new to pastured pigs or have been raising hogs for decades, we hope you hear new ideas and new perspectives on pasturing hogs. Here's your host, Troy McClung. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. As always, I'm your intrepid host, Troy McClung. And I want to, before we get into our discussion today, I want to do some announcements. <laughs> and I have to say, um, you've heard the old adage, you get what you pay for. So the uh, other day, I bought some wireless headphones over the years so I could have them here at the home office when I do these bumpers, intros and the outros, because I actually do the podcast interviews at my office in Charleston, so I can keep all my equipment there, don't have to tear down, set up, all those type of things. I got good cell service, got good internet, blah, blah, blah. So I have these headphones that were probably, I think I spent $23 on them on Amazon. So you get what you pay for. And what's funny is the they're Bluetooth, so the delay right now of me speaking into the microphone and the feedback monitor I'm getting in the headphones is almost a full second. So it, uh, I feel way more than just an echo. It really is a delay. And it reminds me of the old days. This is going to date myself. It reminds me of the old days of, of radio. Back when I do um, have clients get on the radio in the late 90s, they have that same kind of delay. And it was a little awkward to talk. And you found yourself kind of dragging things out sometimes. <laughs> so, so if you're hearing these uh, bumpers, and it sounds like you think, Troy, I think Troy may be having a stroke. <laughs> it's the delay messing me up. <laughs> so I'm trying I'm trying to stay fresh. <laughs> I feel like I'm about half drunk. Okay, so let's get into updates. Well, I wanted to release this podcast. See, there it goes right there. I wanted to release this podcast episode earlier this week. Uh, exciting to have uh, Walt's episode be uh, be aired. But uh, this week's just been crazy, and it's been crazy because of pigs, of all things. So um, this week, we finally decided, before the weather got too warm, we were going to do an old-fashioned hog killing here on the farm. So uh, those of you that watch the channel know a little bit about our farm. We had uh, three boars when we really only wanted one. Uh, One of those three boars, who we dubbed Napoleon, A, for his attitude, and B, for his stature, he he was he just was not genetics that you wanted to replicate. He was kind of a late bloomer, small, a little actually a little aggressive too. So we decided Tuesday we were going to put him down. Actually, no, that's incorrect. We Sunday we put him down. So we put him down and had him hang in the barn for a couple of days before Tuesday when we started actually processing him. And here it is. I'm recording this bumper Friday morning. So we are still not completely done with processing Napoleon. All we have left to do is pull our link sausage, our bratwurst, out of the fridge and cut those to length and get them vacuum sealed. So it was crazy. We had um, so we decided to skin him instead of scald and scrape. And there were two main reasons for that. One was my scalding barrel had rust had a hole rusted in it. 
So that was going to be an issue. And number two was we decided we weren't going to cure the hams and we weren't going to cut out roasts. We we're going to do a lot of grind and just do some basic roasts. So I thought, well, what's the point in keeping the skin on with all the, uh, yes, since we're not doing the hams, traditional, those type of things. So, so we skinned him out, uh, had some friends come over and help on Sunday, really appreciated them helping us out there. And then we, um, I really just cut some boneless roasts out of the loin, saved the belly, which the belly's in the freezer right now, which is not the most ideal situation, but we're going to uh, have to get a smoker. So my plan is to have a cold smoker built by this time, but that hadn't happened yet. And uh, and then we just uh, just did a ton of grind, and it was neat. We did some uh, breakfast sausage, we did some brats, we did uh, natural casings, we did collagen casings, and was able to use these LEM or LEM, however you want to pronounce it, uh, equipment that we had purchased over the past couple of years. So I had one of their heavy-duty grinders, had one of their stuffers, their vacuum sealers, um, what else do we have? Oh, a mixer, meat mixer. So all those things really helped make that process go quicker. But it's still been, uh, it's been a week. Kelly and I have been up till almost midnight every night this week doing that because we work on it in the evenings when she's done with homeschooling and I'm done with office work. Okay, so enough about that. That is why our podcast episode is coming out on a Friday instead of a Tuesday, Wednesday when I like to do that. Some other quick announcements. Just want to give some shout outs to some of our latest Patreon supporters that joined us in the last 30 days. Thank you to Tina V, to Tanner S, and to Matthew H. Really appreciate you all supporting the effort here. And we're getting closer to our goal. Uh, I think we're 14 Patreon supporters away from uh, being able to turn on our uh, next step on our website and do some of those other things we talked about. Be sure to check out our Facebook group. That's growing as well. It seems like daily I get uh, requests for people to join, and that's the Pastured Pig Facebook group. And of course, check out the website, The Pastured Pig. That's where you can go get the latest information on anyone we're featuring and as well as upcoming uh, episodes and uh, yeah, that's where we'll have our directory and some of those other things as time comes along. All right. Um, those of you listening that have sent me an email that you want to be on the podcast, uh, I have not neglected you. I'm trying to get to everybody. We had a really good uh, response here recently of people that want to come on the podcast. So I've got a really long list. I'm trying to get time set up. Uh, and, and that's really my biggest struggle is just making sure that I can pick a time and a date uh, where we can actually have an, a conversation and not be in a situation where I have to reschedule and throw everybody off. So if you haven't and you want to be, still go ahead and send that email. I just keep them in a queue here. I take them in the order that I get them and reach out and try to get those dates scheduled. One last announcement before we move on is uh, we mentioned this last time, kind of teased a little bit, but in May, on May 22nd, we will be co-hosting or co-teaching the Pastured Pig Workshop, which will be down in Grady, North Carolina at Sheraton Park Farms. Now, thanks to Chuck Lewis for uh, hosting that, setting that up, and inviting us to come down. So Kelly and I will be down there spending the day talking about uh, getting started with pastured pigs, the business side of it, uh, marketing elements of it. And Chuck, of course, does a lot of hands-on stuff on his his beautiful farm down there. So if you want to know more about that, you want to possibly register, I'm going to put some links down in the show notes so you can check those out and get registered before then. Okay, well, so the guest today, I'm, I'm 
kind of giddy like a little schoolgirl. I've I've been wanting to have Walt on the podcast, really, actually, since I started this. When I decided to do a podcast about pastured pigs, I'm like, man, here's a list of people I want. So he is he is one of the guys that's been on my short list, and I've been able to to get him on. Excited about that. There's just one or two other people that are on my list that I haven't been able to get yet, but but I'm excited that Walt was able to. Chisel out some time in a schedule to sit down and talk with me, and and I think our conversation went over an hour, and it could have easily gone two or three hours. There's just mountains of questions that I could ask him. But if you don't know Walt Jeffries uh, and you're new to the pastured pig thing, then uh, definitely check him out. Sugar Mountain Farms in New Hampshire or Vermont, sorry, and. Uh, Really good website. I mean, if you've Googled anything about pastured pigs, most likely you've ended up on his website because he has just built an extensive blog library talking about his experiences and how he handles pastured piggery. All right. Well, that's enough. We're going to jump right into the interview and we'll wrap up on the backside. Tonight, I am extremely excited to have uh, this guest on the podcast. I would, uh, I'd be lying if I didn't say I've, I've, I've kind of had this one on my list for a long time, and, and finally our schedule's able to line up. But tonight, from Sugar Mountain Farm in Vermont, I have Walter Jeffries. Welcome, Walter. Hello. Good to be on. All right. Well, I again, appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk with me. So let's um, – so I, would, I would be remiss if I, if I didn't say that most people probably know who Walter is. Uh, I know our audience is – is uh, is probably been on his website, maybe even interacted with him on social media, and uh, he's he's an incredible resource when it comes to pastured piggery. So, first of all, Walter, I want to thank you for that. All the time and effort you've put into your your um, blog, and all the time that you put into responding to people's questions, I'm sure you probably answer the same question probably six thousand times a year. Um, but appreciate what you do there. That's awesome. Well, actually, that's part of what the blog's all about, is making it so that it's easy to give a quick answer and then point to deeper resources. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, and I, and I want to spend some time talking about your website and, and just just make sure people understand the, the depth of it. Just, um, you know, when you, when you look at a website, you really can't, necessarily, you can't necessarily tell how big it is, but, but Walter's site is very robust and just full of years of experience there. But first, Walter, so let, let's, if we could, let's talk about a little bit of history here, a little bit of background. So how far back do we need to go to discuss why and how you got into pastured pig farming? Well, um, when I was 15, I knew that I wanted to eventually be farming. And I had one cousin who was farming in confinement and one who was farming out on pasture. And a little experience with each farm quickly let me know which way I wanted to go. Um, pasture, needless to say. Mm. The um, confinement is what everybody thinks of as confinement. And it really wasn't my style. Whereas the pastured animals, that was what I wanted. The problem I had was I didn't have land and I didn't have money. And so I needed to get both. And so I spent probably 10 years before I had enough money to buy the land that I have here in Vermont. And once I had the land, then it was a matter of gradually building up the skills that I knew I needed to get to pasturing. I thought that I wanted to do cattle, and I'd still like to do cattle. 
I did sheep. The problem with sheep was they just really didn't pay the mortgage back during the 1990s when I was doing them. Mm. And after I'd done them for a few years, I sat back and looked at the numbers and just wasn't looking good. I'm very good at raising sheep. They grow very well on my land, but they don't bring in any money. Right. I was getting about $10 a head and it just wasn't enough for a net. So I sat down and like so many, I did a spreadsheet and tried to figure out different animals. And I came up that the best options were either pigs or mice. <laughs> wow, there's a story there. <laughs> the worst two options were people and horses. Yeah, yeah. So thus I ended up with pigs. I decided I <laughs> like bacon coming off a pig better than off a mouse. Right, right, absolutely. So that that's what led me into pigs. In the early 2000s, I got my first pigs. I guess that was 2001. And we got our pigs, classic spring pigs, April. And we, had, we got four sisters. And we raised them starting on grain, which is how all the books said to do them. And I very quickly found that that was just like I thought, fairly expensive. Mm. Um, our sheep bought the pigs to eat pasture. And I observed this. And so I started cutting back the grain ration. And I cut it back to the point where there was no grain ration. And I said, okay, well, maybe we can do this. And that's what led to pasture pigs. And they're not getting any grain ration. About a year later, somebody from the local creamery stopped by and said he needed a place where he could drop off the way from making butter and cheese. And I already knew that there were places that fed whey and that that was a traditional feed for pigs. And that's how we got started. It was about 700 gallons a week in the beginning. And then we got up to the point where we were doing about 300,000 gallons a year now something like that wow. um, so the complement of about seven percent by dry matter intake of dairy which is mostly whey plus the pasture is what our pigs eat and there are periods like right now when that's virtually all that they're getting and there are other times when we also get like apple pumice from the fall apples for cider making. Um, other things, uh, for a long time, I was getting spent barley from a local brew pub. That's very good stuff to mix with pasture. Mm. Basically, I'm available to all kinds of options for good foods, I'm trying to keep things out of the landfill and into the animals. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, and we're not. I'm sorry. I just want to ask you a real quick question. And we're not talking about you know a couple head here or there. You have a you have a pretty substantial uh, a number of head on your farm at any given time, right? Yeah, we have typically around 400 to 600. Good night. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's not like a, a bucket of milk here and a bucket of uh, whey there type of thing. <laughs> no, no. It comes in on a big truck. 
Yeah. Um, in fact, I built the driveway in the location of my home based on making it so the truck could climb up the mountain, load into 1,000 to 3,000 gallon tanks up at the top, and then everything gravity feeds down to the troughs. <laughs> wow. Um, we, we don't have any pumps because things like that just aren't reliable. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Well, I'm sorry to interrupt you. If you would please continue there. That's that's amazing. Um, I was talking about the diet. So the diet is about 80% to 90% dry matter of pasture. And in the winter, that gets replaced with hay, which is essentially canned pasture. Mm-hmm. And then there's generally 7%, and that's fairly constant, of the dairy which usually is in the form of whey, sometimes it's cream or butter or milk, sometimes cheese, sometimes cottage cheese, sour cream. It, it varies depending on what's happening at the creamery. And other good things are there's day-old bread that you can get from local bakeries. Um, they need to get rid of it. You can't put it in the landfill in a lot of states now. And that's good pig feed. Um, I wouldn't feed all of one thing to a pig, so I wouldn't put a pig purely on dairy or I wouldn't put a pig purely on bread. But as a mix of the whole diet, it works well. As a general rule of thumb, things that are like the spent grain, which is barley, which has had the sugars taken off for the feeding the yeast, you can take that up to about 25% of the dry matter intake of the animal for things that are fatty like um, peanut butter or milk that should stay at no more than 10% Mm. and 7% is what I find is a good number. The pasture is actually the one thing that I can take all the way up to a hundred percent. The one thing you'll get with a ultra high pasture diet like that is that the growth is going to slow down some because they're not getting as many calories. Mm -hmm. And you're going to have a little bit leaner pig unless you have bred for a high-fat pig. Um, That's something that I've done over the years. That's something you'll see in the Mangalese and in the Berkshire, um, some of these other breeds that are the really older breeds. Interesting. If if I could interject there, so so it sounds like what you're saying over the course of your experience that you are breeding um, a, a, a specific pig that responds well to being more on pasture, and and that the two are are, are symbiotically linked there. That uh, the genetics yes. play well into the pasture, and the pasture plays well into the genetics. Incredible. Yes, very much so. I have two breeding lines. One is called Blackie Line, and one is called Main Line. And that's my genetics for my farm. Hmm. And I've been working on those breeds for 20 years now. Wonderful. Wow. So you're, you're, you're a closed loop farm when it comes to your genetics, right? You're, you are, you're farrowing, you are, you're taking care of all that on farm. For the most part, about 99%. Okay. Every once in a while, I'll bring in something new, such as I brought in last year, boar or Berkshire and a, also a large black which I've crossed in. I also have a third herd that is just pure Berkshire. Hmm. Wow. Incredible. Um, if we could, if we could back up a little bit. So talking about 
the pasture, the amount of head that you're covering. Uh, obviously, uh, winters aren't short up there in Vermont and, and all the things that go into that, the hay and, and, and the storage of all these um, feed choices and things. How how did you set that up? What, what was the infrastructure? I know you'd said you had waited, you'd, you'd gone 10 years to get the property that you wanted. Uh, just, how much acreage are we talking about here? How much infrastructure was in place? How much did you have to build from scratch? And and my goodness, how did you even start to discern what, what needed to start first or what was your first area of focus? Well, I built everything from scratch. Okay. Um, I have about a thousand acres. Wow. Um, and most of that I do as sustainable forestry. Hmm. It, trees are a very long-term crop. You won't, sometimes you won't come back for 10 or 30 years to the same area for cutting trees. Hmm. And I do selective cutting. Um, you're always trying to raise the quality of the trees until you get a group to the point where it's that harvestable. Um, I produce a very lot of um, high quality wood that goes into veneers. Um, a fair bit of it gets shipped to Japan, in fact. Mm. It, it's really amazing to me, kind of mind boggling, that the trees get cut from here in Vermont. They go onto a ship down off Boston and they by the time they get to Japan, they've already shaved the trees so they're uncurled right. and they've made the laminate for making veneers. Yeah, it's amazing. And and they make the products then and, and it's just it's an amazing process. Yeah, yeah, it is. A lot of those products end up back in the States uh, for retail sales. <laughs> yeah, yeah, isn't that funny? It is. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of infrastructure, I basically did everything. I started out with what had been a farm a long, long time ago and then had been abandoned. And the extent of it was you could still see where the stone walls were. And there were a couple of fields that were a little bit open, five acres, seven acres. And the rest of it, I cleared back to the stone walls and fenced up and, and got things going. Mm. Long ago, I brought in one of the county extension agents and the key piece of advice that she gave me was best way to improve the soil was get animals grazing on it Hmm. and the you combine that with planting legumes and other things that are going to be good forages and that gradually sequesters huge amounts of nitrogen and carbon down into the plants and that becomes your soil Yeah, wow, that, that's that's fast. It's it's excellent to get that type of advice that that long ago. Yeah, it, it's one of those things where it seems like it just just here in the last you know, decade or two that that people are really talking about that from a sustainable level. And and what a great situation to get that advice early in your your pig career. Yep, was, that was back when I actually was at sheep. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, that was the early nineties. So, so I would assume out of that that one thousand acres that that you you acquired there that um, the majority of that is in in forest. And so, how much how much pasture land or are, are, are the pigs have access? Are they are they they cruising all that one thousand acres? Or are they kind of in a specific area? No, there there's about a seventy acre area that I use for the farming part, and in any particular year. I'm using around 30 or 40 acres of that. Mm. And that's what I call my grand rotation. 
So within that 70 acre part of it gets used one year and some other parts get used another year. And there are some parts that get used every year. And this creates the grand rotation. My long-term goal is to bring all of the areas back to pasture the way I want them. But that's the long-term goal. Mm-hmm. At this point, there's a fair bit that brush. The pigs love brush. Um, they're kind of like goats in that manner. Mm-hmm. They'll go through and they'll they'll eat brambles and the unfortunately they'll eat blueberries. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they they love everything. Mm. So, l- looking at, at at that layout and, and what your what you built from scratch, I, I know you had talked about this the storage tanks and everything for the way, and, and obviously that's that's probably been more recent. But with with having that many head all year long, how what other infrastructure do you have to have? Do you have do you have to build large barns? Do you have you know tons of farrowing huts? Do you you farrow out on pasture? How do you handle that, especially with those Vermont winters? Um, the answer is no on the barns. I actually do have a barn, but it's, it's way on the other side of the land. It's too far away. Um, the, what I use in the central area, for, which is our wintering area, is a, a series of sheds that are open sheds. Um, it's very important that these sheds are open because you need adequate airflow. Mm. Um, poor airflow will lead to disease in both the farmer and in the animals. So that's a bad thing to have. You want good airflow. A deep bedding pack is really key. That's the most important thing. The pigs can have a deep bedding pack out in the middle of a plateau and they'll be okay. The next thing to add is a windbreak. If they have a windbreak, it can be brush or it can be the contours of the land, that makes it into something that they find quite acceptable. The next thing after that is roof. That reduces the amount of precipitation that goes into the bedding pack and makes for a much better bedding pack. Um, it keeps it drier, which is the biggest thing. In the areas where there are sows farrowing, if they've got that roof, they, they do better but they are actually amazingly able to farrow with just a big round hay bale out in the middle of the snow. Mm, wow. And they'll, they'll turn that into a home. Um, it, it's quite amazing. The, uh, I had one sow who was getting, she was the Omega sow, and she was getting beat up by the other sows in the group. And she, just before she farrowed, she kept breaking through the fencing, and she went over to the sugar shack, and she went over to a couple of other places. She was looking for a good place to farrow. Mm. She wanted something that was broken from the wind. And so I placed a hay bale that was in a windbreak and she went right to that and she farrowed a nice big litter from that. Mm. Wow. So it works, they, they make it work. Now, what I like to have is something that has three walls and a roof. And then I like to be able to open up the ventilation a little bit more as needed. So when we get really bitter conditions, when it gets down to negative 25, negative 45 degrees, low zero, in those conditions, I'll close up the north vents. And when it's nice and warm, so over zero, I'll open up those vents so the air goes through. 
Excellent. I think it's funny that you say nice and warm is over zero. <laughs> <laughs> well, Spoken like a true New Englander. <laughs> actually worse in the 30 to 40 degree range is a much less pleasant temperature. Yeah. And the reason is when you're in that range, things are wet. And when you're wet, you get cold. Whereas in the 10 degree to 30 degree, that's a really pleasant range. And even down to zero is pretty good. As long, if, if the wind's blowing, it's, a, it's another matter, but you need wind breaks. Um, part of why I chose where I built my farm is the way the wind patterns are. Hmm. Another big thing is because of where the springs are. Hmm. Yeah, wow. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because down here in West Virginia, we we our average temperature in the winter is about forty three degrees, and we are very wet. Yeah, we're very wet because we're west of the Appalachian Mountains where we're located, so we get that uh, squeeze effect. And yeah, I I mean, there's there's times that's you know knee deep mud and and really frustrating. But right now we're actually experiencing a bit of a freeze. So I was just commenting this morning as I was out feeding the pigs. It's like wow, it's nice to walk on frozen ground today instead of being in all the mud. Yeah, yeah. I think you have it much harder than we do in that (laughs) regard because when it's muddy, we we get about two weeks in November and about two weeks in March when we may get mud. Yeah, and I don't like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and I'm, my goodness, I'm hopping all over the place here because I just, I just think of things that I've seen you respond to and stuff that I've read on your site and, and stuff you've posted on social media that just comes to mind. It's like, oh, I got to ask him about that. But so talking about the cold Vermont winters, I know everybody listening is like, yeah, but you love those temperatures, but it's a pain in the butt breaking you know, ice on the water troughs or hauling water or putting in hydrants all over the place. So can you, can you tell our listeners how you manage that? How do you take care of water in those cold temperatures? Well, the first thing I do is I use equipment that never breaks. That's gravity. <laughs> gravity doesn't break. I've, I've never had gravity fail me. Right. I mean, the power will go out for an average of two weeks every year. And so I can't depend on electricity. Hmm. So the one thing I identify that I can depend on is gravity. All of my springs are uphill hmm. as as much as 164 feet of vertical head and 2,500 feet of linear length. And what that is, it makes it so that all my water is pressurized naturally. Yeah. That just solves so much problem. The next thing is that water coming out of the mountain is warm. It's about 45 degrees, Mm -hmm. which compared with the air temperatures is quite warm. Mm The animals consider it warm, that they like to go in that water. Um, The, so the water's coming out under pressure. It goes through two inch and one inch and four inch pipes, depending on what part of the system it's in. And it goes between a series of 65 gallon plastic barrels that are set in the ground so that only the top little bit of the barrel is exposed. Interesting. The pipe goes into the barrel, keeps that barrel filled, and then another pipe takes the water that's overflowing from there and takes it to the next barrel. And these just cascade down the mountain Hmm. so that I've got these barrels all over the place set up and running. And if they're running all winter, they never freeze. So I'm never out there breaking ice. 
when it gets really cold, I drape them. I'll put a shroud on them of some type. It, it might be like an animal shelter. It, it, sometimes it's just a piece of bale wrap. Anything that'll just keep the wind out of there. And that keeps it so that the little bit of heat that the water's got is kept right there. Um, one of the things is we get snow early. It's not unusual for us to get a little snow in late August, September. And by October, we may well have snow solidly on the ground. November, almost certainly. The result is our ground doesn't really freeze it very deeply. I know there are places south of us where they get four feet of snow, of frost depth, and mm. that's much harder to deal with. You got to put your pipes a lot further down. Um, but I actually can get away with putting my pipes right on the surface of the ground or even a couple of inches down because I've got so much snow depth on top of it. Um, our, our snow melts from the bottom up. That's amazing. You can, you can see it when you watch the pattern of snow melt. This keeps the water running all year round. Wow. That's amazing. I, I would have never have thought that that you would have had a shorter frost depth depth that far north. And and uh, yeah, that that's fantastic. So so with those barrels, obviously I, I, they're strategically located throughout your pasture, so it, it works with your rotational process. And I assume since you put them in vertically, they're small enough that you don't have to worry about a pig falling into them. That that's non issue. Or do you have a screen or a grate or something there to keep that from happening? There's a small hole for the pig to reach in to drink. Hmm. It's too small for most pigs to fall in, and there are rocks in the barrel. Oh, okay. So if a pig falls in, it's able to jump out. We actually did have this be a problem. We used, the first time we made one like that, we actually cut the top of the barrel off. From our point of view, looking at it as humans and the way we drink, that made sense. Hmm. But what pigs do is they come to that and they don't understand the vertical nature of the barrel. And so they lean in and fall mm. head first oh, yeah. into the water and promptly drown. So after one incidence of that, we figured out what to do. And that is put rocks in the barrel. So now they can't fall very far in. The purpose of the size of the barrel is not to have a large volume of water. It's to get down deep to get the heat of the ground. Mm -hmm. Um, our frost depth is about two to four inches. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> well, that's that's like a, a quarter of what it is in West Virginia. That's amazing. So, so goodness, wow. So, looking at. I want to be sensitive to your time. I obviously consider and talk to you for about three hours, but I, I promise I won't do that to you. Um, looking at some of the the other aspects of your farm um, as you grew and, and I assume you, you didn't go out in the, in the late nineties, early two thousands and say, okay, we're starting with 400 head of pigs. I assume there was a growth pattern there, but if you could talk about that growth and then why and kind of how you decided it was time to build your own processing facility on farm. Sure. Um, first of all, Let's not worry about the time for right now. Okay. And you can edit as you need to fit your needs. So when we originally started with the pigs, we got four piglets. So our starting 
heard was four, and it was our, let's see how this goes. The four gradually grew. We slaughtered one of those. The other three we bred with a boar that we borrowed. We paid for that boar by giving the boar owner one piglet from each of the litters, pick the litter. And then that became 10 sows. We sold the piglets for meat and that then grew to 30 sows, 60 sows, 100 sows. Mm. So that was growing over a long period of time. Um, I'd say that took us 10 years, 12 years to get to. Mm. Okay. Yeah, about that. And in parallel with that, we already knew that we were going to eventually need to do processing at some point. We were trying to put it off for as long as possible. We had a lot of other infrastructure things that we wanted to be working on. And when we actually started doing the butcher shop, it was because it became a necessity because the butcher we had been working with was closing down. This is a problem nationwide, lots mm. of butcher shops, small ones going under. And so we were put into the position of we either needed to build our own or we were going to be trucking a very long distance. And lots of people have that problem. After doing, get back to Excel spreadsheets again, lots of spreadsheets mm. I came up with, we needed to do 2.3 pigs per week to make it work. We were already well beyond that. So doing the butcher shop was pretty much a no-brainer for us. The, I went in, we talked with the USDA. I had a meeting with them. They sent me home with a box of about a cubic foot of reading material. <laughs> And I went to the state and they gave me another box. And after many more meetings and going over plans and things, it took me about a month to get all the permitting. Permitting was greatly simplified because we are a farm and we're in a town that has no zoning. Hmm. And that's not an accident because when I bought my land back in the 1980s, I purposely picked a town that had no zoning. Mm. Yeah. And then I very strongly attended town meetings to fight zoning. Um, some people will tell you they like zoning because it means somebody won't do something next to them. Right. That applies to you too. Right, exactly. Yes. Goes, goes both ways. Yep. Um, I'm not a fan of zoning. The So we started doing the initial process of talking to the USDA in the state of Vermont in 2008 and in June of 2009 we had all of our permits we tore down the old hay shed this is another thing that simplified the permitting is we were using the existing foundation <laughs> we started in on that foundation we poured a new foundation right on top of it mm. And this gave us a unified flat surface to begin work on. 
it took us a total of seven years from first day of planning to the day we opened to build out the butchery part of the butcher shop. We don't do slaughter yet. That's the next thing on my agenda. Um, so just to get butchery took seven years. The reason it took that long was money. We didn't have any grants. We didn't have any bank loans, that kind of stuff. They wanted, I, I talked with many banks and I talked with various grant applications and things. They wanted us to be doing processing for lots of farms. And frankly, just doing processing from our farm means that we're freeing up slots at other processors. So it doesn't really make sense for me to also do it for other farms. They wanted us to take on slaughter at the same time that we were taking on butchery. And we didn't want to do that because we wanted to go baby steps. Do a little bit, get that under our belt, do the next bit. Hmm. Um, they wanted us to build much bigger than we wanted to build. And doing that would have cost several million dollars as opposed to about a quarter million dollars that we spent. Hmm. Wow. And I assume then that since that, since you stretched that out, then the, uh, the proceeds from the farm funded that process. So it kept you from going into debt, kept you from being beholden to some other body, some other entity yep. through a grant or something like that. I, I have some personal loans from a number of people who came through. They have um, money from doing the forestry, money from doing the farming. Um, I sold my dump truck and there were a bunch of other things that I, there were equipment that I sold that I wasn't really using enough to justify keeping it if I'm going to focus on the butcher shop. Yeah. And through a combination of all these things, we did the Kickstarter, which brought in about $30,000 and just little bits here and there, we brought it all together. Excellent. Uh, if, if we could, I'd like to back up real quick, and, and I, I think our listeners would probably appreciate this as well. Um, explain, for, for those that don't know, the difference. So you said you don't do slaughter yet. So at what point are you taking, I assume you're taking your pigs all farm to be slaughtered or somebody coming and slaughtering on farm and then goes into your, your processing um, process? They go off farm to be slaughtered, and then the carcass goes back and it's supposed to come back chilled to us. Hmm. Um, this actually has been a little bit of a problem in that sometimes the carcasses have not come back properly chilled. Hmm. I see. So this is, is one of the, I'm sorry. One of the reasons that's, going to, that's one of the reasons we're going to be doing the slaughter sooner I than see. later. Okay. So is that is that a skinned? Is that a scraped? Do you do you have a, an opportunity to request one or the other? Or it's scalded and scraped. Scalded. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah, that, that's much higher quality because keeping the skin on means you keep more of the fat. The skin mm. is actually an edible product in a lot of pork mm. dishes. And you end up with a higher quality meat if it's had the skin on during the hanging and aging process. Yeah. So you really want to do scald and scrape if you have the option. Yeah, yeah, that's that's something that's a rarity in my neck of the woods. But I, I've definitely have heard and read the same that uh, there's there's a lot of benefit in, in doing skull and scrape. That's why they they did it for centuries, <laughs> millennia before we <laughs> started skinning them out. Like, yeah. so, there's another thing, and that is that people sometimes think, oh, you should have done the slaughter first. 
what they don't understand is the slaughter is the least cost thing to hire out. Mm -hmm. So to hire out the slaughter is about $65. (laughs) But to build up the slaughter Mm -hmm. is about 200,000. Wow. 150 to 200,000 to get that part of the building finished. Is so that is that because of the, all the um, rest of the building? Yeah, I'm sorry. Go all ahead. the rest of the building is only about two hundred fifty thousand. Wow! So you can see there's a big cost difference between the two. It's much more expensive to build out the slaughter portion. Now, the butchery portion is much more expensive to hire out, mm-hmm. but it's much cheaper to build out. Mm. So if I build the butchery part and start doing the butchery, I earn back my costs much faster than if I were to do slaughter first. Yeah. On top of that, once I've got the butchery going, I can do some specialty cuts and value added things that I can't do if all I'm doing is slaughter. Mm-hmm. And it's easier to add start some of the value added like sausage and bacon, corn pork, salt pork, other things like that quickly down the road, whereas you have to do the, the butchery part before you can do any of those. Right, right. So it actually makes sense economically to do the butchery as the first step that you take on, pay somebody else to do slaughter for a little while. The cost is the trick to there and the ice, because we're having to put ice on carcasses because they're not chilling them down enough Hmm. and then the cost of having the butchery done i mean sorry the slaughter done yeah so would you say in your experience the the expense the reason why the slaughter is so expensive to build out is that just because all the regulatory guidelines with the kill floor and and disposal and all those type of things no Hmm. it's the piece of equipment oh no kidding okay yeah there's a hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment oh so this is this shows my ignorance. Um, so, so is this a is that a, a pneumatic process? Is it an electrocution? What, what do they do at, in, in that, well, at that scale? Well, I, let me list them for you. There's a stun cage. Hmm. You need that. You need a stunner. Then you need a crane, basically a high rail, hmm. which has a hoist on it, and you pick the carcass up by that. You bleed it out. Then you need a scalder and a scraper, and then you need a second rail, and you need the gutting station, and then you need refrigeration. Mm -hmm. And there's a bunch of little things in all of this. What I just listed for you was the seven big items, and they add up to about 100,000 in price may be a little bit higher now because I haven't looked at the price in five years. Mm. So I assume that takes some decent square footage as well of, of a building to to house that properly so you can go from station to station. Actually, no. no? Um, <laughs> I'm striking out like crazy here, aren't I? <laughs> well, well, you're making typical assumptions. You're making the assumptions that most people have made. And so I've made different assumptions. Mm-hmm. And for example, my um, butchery room is only six feet wide by 16 feet long. Okay. And you might say, oh my, that's tiny. 
but it's very efficient. Every motion, every square inch of that space has function. And I can put 10 pigs through that in rapid succession. Mm. The, in terms of the slaughter, the slaughter room is a 16 by 16 foot room. Mm -hmm. And then the chiller is a seven foot by 20 foot room. Mm. The slaughter room is 20 feet tall. The chiller room is 15 feet tall. The height of the rooms is actually important because heat rises and that helps with the refrigeration systems. I see. So, so that does require a, um, more, like, more cubic feet, I guess, then. Uh, so not necessarily a huge footprint for the, the slaughter, but, but, but a much bigger building. Yeah. Ironically, of the portion that we are primarily using right now, the inspector's office and the bathroom and the hall actually occupy... 60% of the total space. <laughs> right. <laughs> yep, the things you have to do for USDA. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, well, let me ask you that real quick. Uh, is, is Vermont uh, state-inspected option as well, and you've done both? Um, so you, yes. your state, yeah. Yeah, I, I, and I, I assume, it, and it sounds like from what you said, you got paperwork from the state that you had to jump through hoops on, and then obviously the USDA, and then housing the USDA inspector, all of those things that go along with that. Um, is is that is that something in your business model or business plan you just looked and thought, well, I'm, Vermont's a small state. We move a lot of pork across the state, so we need to do both? Um, it was a matter of we wanted to do USDA, and both USDA and the state encouraged us to do state first mm -hmm. because the state is more responsive when you have questions and you need some help. The USDA is more remote. They were tiny from the point of view of the USDA, but from the point of view of the state, we're an okay size. Mm -hmm. So these things make it so that it's a good idea to start out at the state level and then and to the USDA level. So what we did was we ran for, I guess it was a year and a half at just state, and then we added USDA at that point. Mm, okay. So with, with that USDA inspector, I, I know from what I understand, and this is where you can correct me if I'm wrong, again, making assumptions. So that USDA inspector, you, you basically pay his salary or a portion of his salary. Is he on site every day that you're open or is he just there specific days when you're doing specific processes? Oh, I would love to pay his salary. That would mean I would have control over him. Most of the inspectors are great people. They do their job. There's a couple of assholes. If I hired and fired, I'd be able to get rid of the assholes. Mm. The problem is you don't pay for the inspector. Right, right. The Inspectors paid out of taxes and fees and things like that, and they're assigned, and you have no control over them at all. And you can get the best inspector for a while, and things are going smoothly and great, and then you get the asshole, and he comes in, and he doesn't know anything that he's talking about, <laughs> and he makes all kinds of trouble. Right. And every plant you talk to will have a story about this. Yeah. Most of the inspectors are great. And the state and the USDA as a whole were very good to deal with. Um, 
unfortunately, I do not pay the salary. Yeah, but but you do pay a fee that that would that goes. Obviously, we taxpayer dollars actually are what what's paying that. But you do pay a fee for the inspector, or is that just part of your licensure? We pay a license. Gotcha. Okay. So is is he on is he on site every day that that you're cutting? Is that five days a week? Well, when we started out, the inspector was there the whole time that we worked, and after they'd seen us working for. I don't know, about three months or so, they decided that we had everything down and we knew what we were doing. And then they would show up for about an hour. Hmm. And then after they'd been doing that for a while and we went through what's called a food safety audit, then they dropped back where they might drop in for five minutes Hmm. or they might drop in for half an hour. Um, They've got a whole lot of places they have to cover across the state. And so being at one place all the time when they're not really needed there is as a waste of their time. Mm-hmm. What they do is they come in, they observe, they look at the place, they look at what you're doing. They look at the paperwork. They make sure that everything's kosher and, and literally sometimes the, <laughs> and then they go on their merry way. Um, the, if you are doing slaughter, they have to be there the entire time of slaughter right? because they have to do what's called an anti-mortem inspection, which is when the animal is alive and walking around. And then they have to do a post-mortem inspection, which is after you've done all the gutting and everything. Mm-hmm. And so the animal is just a carcass. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm familiar with that. That's where they would then look at the liver in that situation. And like you said, just it, 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 that that pig has to be put down on the killing floor in that certain circumstance. And, and that inspector has to see that happen. Yeah. 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 I, I, I took my pigs one time to a processor and one of them got out and he had to put it down out in the pasture with a with a rifle. And he said, well, I can't I can't process that the way I could process your other ones because it didn't die on my killing floor. So I was a little put out about that. Yeah, if they have the right licenses, they'd still be able to process that one. Mm -hmm. But what they'd have to do is they have to process it at the end of the day after all the other animals. Hmm. Um, What we did was we had all of the possible licenses. So we could do everything. Yeah. And that's for, for our situation that worked really well. Yeah. Excellent. So, so would you say at this point you are right now as is on farm processing with, with the headaches and with the, the, the hoops you jump through with the inspectors that are jerks sometimes, would you say it, it's profitable not only in finances, but profitable in, in the hassle? Do you, do you feel oh, yes. looking back? This Definitely. is a good one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, very much. I would encourage everybody to do it. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't take much to justify it. Now, for me, the justification was at 2.3 pigs per week. One of the things to note is that makes an assumption of 50 weeks a year. Mm-hmm. So if you're only doing a few weeks of pigs in the fall, it's not going to work. Right. But if you can do those few weeks of pigs in the fall, but you don't need USDA and you don't need state inspecting and you can do it under custom inspection or even purely custom without any inspection, hey, you're back to a point where you might be able to make it work. Mm. And I'd strongly suggest everybody to look at it. It really makes a big difference on the farm. If you can't handle the slaughter yourself, there's iterant slaughterers who can come to your farm and they'll do it for you. 
And then all you have to do is you take the carcass, turn it into cuts. And that's something where you have a lot of margin of error. You can learn. And every time you do a half of a pig, you're learning. Mm. So when you kill an animal, you got to do it right. You can't be learning. You need to know what you're doing. But when you're doing the cutting, when you're making sausage, you can learn. You can practice on your family. I'm not cutting them off. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I say, like, wait a minute. You want a little psycho on me there? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, that's great. Um, everybody's going to have a different number where it works. For me, the number of 2.3 works because I built the facility. I designed the facility. All I had to pay for was my materials. I didn't have to hire an architect. I didn't have to hire an engineer. I didn't have to hire all these different things. Um, I have the knowledge of how to do building. Hmm. If you have to have somebody else do the building, you're going to have to factor that in. And maybe it's going to take four pigs a week for you to be able to justify adding it to your farm. Now, one of the things that is hard to know ahead of time is there is a tremendous improvement in the efficiency of butchery once you're doing it yourself. Mm. You throw away a lot less. (laughs) You get much higher yields than when it's done somewhere else. Not only that, but you can do things like crown roasts, like porchetta, all kinds of other things that you can't get done. Right. And these become valuable things. Um, One year I sold 88 porchettas, Hmm. ranging from $600 down to $25. My goodness. And that's a big market. And that's not something that you can do unless you have the butchery yourself. Yeah, and I, I, I love the economics of that because that when that pencils out, and, and like you said, the spreadsheets, when you look at that on the spreadsheet and you see this one pig with all of this post-production, all this value-added service, you know, it's, it's value or profit per pound is just off the charts compared to just selling you know, hanging weight. Exactly. Wonderful. So, so how do you staff... I mean, I, I, I know, I know you're, you're a very accomplished individual, but you know, there's only one Walter Jeffrey. So how do you staff the, the processing and the farm and all of that? I mean, do you have an army behind you now or are you? Are you... <laughs> Two people is enough to do it. Oh, wow. Um, the, if farming is going with nothing's going wrong and it's not a heavy snow fall day and everything's smooth, there's about two hours of farm work. Mm-hmm. So just maintenance, general routine. And then for the tree, there's about six to eight hours of that. And there's about two hours of extraneous other stuff. So it actually isn't all that much. And it gets spread out over seven day weeks. Yeah. yeah. And in, since I have full control of everything, I can decide which days I want to take off. Yeah. So I would assume, as is, I know this is a dumb question knowing you, but I assume that you know every station in the process. You, you, you can handle every single process. So you're not relying on somebody that's a, a vital cog in the, in the wheels. I have no employees. No, oh, there you go. So you, you and a little buddy? 
<laughs> one person can do it. One person can do everything. With one person, it's a stretch. Yeah. It's it's a it definitely is a lock for one person. Two people, it's fairly easy. Yeah. Do you sleep at all? <laughs> yeah, actually, I, I get a good solid eight hours a night. Okay. I was going to say, because it, it's one of those things that as, as much as you respond to people's questions and help people out and then still do all that, I, I'm, I'm just amazed. I'm like, man, this, this guy's well, you know, vampire or, or robot or something. So, I, I read about two hours a day. I spend about two hours a day listening to podcasts mm. of things where I need to use my eyes on them. Mm-hmm. When I'm working... I listen to podcasts or YouTube, which I don't need my eyes for. Mm -hmm. So those are times for sort of self-improvement while I'm working, because if I'm cutting meat or if I'm out doing things in the field, my hands are doing the things, but my brain could be doing something else. Um, And I get a solid eight hours sleep and it, it works. Yeah. Excellent. Now, do you have an do you have an on farm store for your cuts, or do you do you sell no. orders? So, so you don't no, have not, not at all. Okay. Yeah, I, I have not done the store route. I'm kind of out in the sticks. We've talked about it off and on, mm-hmm. but it just hasn't come up as really being necessary. So far, in the past twenty years, people place their orders. We box their orders. We hand them their order and they've already paid. Yeah. In most cases. So it's it's a quick transition. Some people want the driveway tour. Mm. Um, they want to see the butcher shop. But for most people, they just want to get their box of meat. Um, we also deliver most things. I see. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, that was good. That's one of the questions I actually had in my list of questions because um, – it's something that makes me chuckle a little bit, but how many times a week or a day do you get asked for people to come see your farm and your setup and, and all that you've done? I tell them left by pick. <laughs> right. <laughs> Quite serious about this because yeah. the reason is I get that request multiple times a day. Oh, I bet. And if I were to entertain everybody who wanted to come and see, it, I'd end up like Joe Stalin and not, Nothing wrong with him, but mm-hmm. it's just not my style. Mm-hmm. And it would take a number of my hours every day. Oh, yeah. 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 Sure. yeah. I, I wouldn't be doing farming and I wouldn't be doing butchery and I wouldn't be doing all the other things I do because there's a lot of other stuff I do too. And I just wouldn't have time for it. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I got to, I got to confess when I was up in Northern Vermont two years ago, I was visiting a couple farms and stuff. I was like, oh, I want to reach out to Walter and see if I can come see his place. And then I, I looked on your website and like, nope, not gonna, even going to ask because I figure he gets that 16 times a day. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. Yeah, When you look at Salatin's setup, he, he doesn't get, I mean, he's got interns, he's got employees, he's got family members that are helping do all that stuff. He really doesn't get to farm very much anymore because now he's pretty much a tour guide. And yeah. and that's what he does. Well, yeah, he's a, he's a manager. He He knows the overall spread of everything he has a lot of knowledge on that and he's good at managing people managing people is not my strong suit Mm. my strong suit is innovation and my strong suit is doing things Um, i'm very fast i can butcher a pig probably faster than you've ever seen anybody do it Mm. Um, i've been told by the inspectors that i'm the fastest person they've ever seen oh wow and it's because i focus in really tight 
I know exactly how to move the knife, what angle to hold it at, how sharp to keep my knives, all of those things, so that I know precisely how I'm doing it. And I do everything in my life that way. Yeah, yeah. Attention to detail, that's excellent. So, goodness, man, there's just all these questions that keep popping into my head. So, so when you're on the floor, when you're working in the in the processing area and you're cutting pigs, um, are you are you cutting are you cutting for inventory or is this just orders only? I, I know you do some restaurant work, so is, it, is you have a specific cut list and say I need to fill this by this time, or we're going to inventory some of this because we always get people to call and ask for that. How do you, how do you navigate that? Everything's pre-ordered. Wonderful. Wow. Um. Prior to the pandemic, about 88% of our sales was stores and restaurants. Mm. And that crashed. Yeah. So things after that have been interesting. Um, Because I own the entire vertical integration, I've been able to survive where I think a lot of places had a hard time. Yeah. Yeah. We, I mean, we interviewed some people that they, they really hit it hard when the, when the pandemic happened and the restaurants shut down, it, it was a a big financial blow for them. So that's great that you were insulated from that. So at, at this point we do more for the individual buyers than for restaurants and stores, restaurants and stores, they're going to recover. Um, it's going to come back. The, the restaurants, a lot of them that were buying from us are simply out of business. Those ones probably will never come back, but somebody else will come into their space. Yeah. One of the, one of the interesting things about the restaurant business is that when a restaurant gets built, they put a lot of money into all of the equipment in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And so after they've done that, those fixtures often are part of the lease revert to the landlord which means the next tenant where a restaurant used to be is almost certainly going to be a restaurant in the future right yeah yeah interesting well goodness um this is tough for me to shift gears because there's there's other questions but i i do want to spend some time talking about your website because uh, I, I firmly believe that most of our listeners, if they haven't been to your website, they may not realize they haven't been to your website simply because of so many backlinks, people you know, linking to your resources and those things. So the the SugarMountain.com or, or uh, SugarMTNFarm.com website is extremely robust. How, how long have you been working on that website? How, when, when, when was the birth of that and, and, and how long has it taken you to get to where you are with that? Um. Well, some of the articles came actually from before the website, all the way back to probably 2003. Mm. The website itself, I think, goes back to 2005. There's about 2,000, well, maybe 2,600 now. There's probably 2,600 articles. (laughs) And there's about 20 thousand questions and answers um most of the topics are related to pasture farming and of that mostly pigs Mm -hmm. but it also covers chickens and ducks and geese and it covers building the butcher shop there's an extensive amount of information about 
construction of the butcher shop. Um, with the information that's there, anybody who has a good grasp of construction techniques would be able to build their own. Mm -hmm. it, it would give them all the links into the USDA that they need for that kind of thing. Um, yeah, that's what I, I'm sorry. I was just saying that comment you said that that that's what I just find fascinating about your site, specifically you know, using the butcher shop as an example. If you go to Walter's butcher shop page on his website, um, I mean, it, it's almost like his personal diary. He's, he's showing, you know, at this date, this is what happened. This is what's going on. Shows the floor plan, the layout pictures. Yeah, it's it's just amazing. And man, I, I just I'm just in. Uh, amazed and just impressed that that you've taken the time to document all this and to document it all for people to just have access to freely it's fantastic well glad you glad you like it um i find it's much faster for me to write an article and answer the questions once there and then answer any follow-ups and comments than to keep explaining the same thing over and over <laughs> right. you, you mentioned this before yeah. um i'm a very very fast typist and I compose in my head. So like when I'm cutting a pig or I'm out in the field putting out hay like I was today, I might be writing an article in my head. Mm. And I have very good memory. So I can then just come to the computer and I sit down and I type. And I type about 150 words a minute. So I can type the whole article in fairly quickly. Yeah. Wow. And I've, I've got another almost 3,000 articles that I haven't released. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and the, another thing that impresses me as well is you know, just as I peruse your website to see that you actively take the time to answer questions. And it may be a question that you just have to say, hey, you know, see this article here. It, it's you know, we've already covered that. But you, you interact regularly with your visitors and communicate with them. It's just amazing how approachable and, and how much of a resource you are for that. Well, I read every single comment. Mm. Um, I, I moderate the website. I don't want any spam on there. Mm. And I use Akismet, which is a automated spam filter, mm -hmm. and it catches most of it. And then I catch the rest of the spam. And then I answer any questions and approve any other comments and things that are real, real people. Yeah, yeah. You're using a WordPress platform, isn't it? Yes, it's yeah. WordPress. Very good platform. Yeah, yeah, I agree, 100%. All right. So, wow. Um, it, it, those of you guys listening, if, if you haven't, for some reason, if you haven't made it to to um, to this website, uh, it, it's just it's just a resource. I, I would I would recommend sitting down and just spending an evening going through it. I think it's it's an incredible uh, resource. You're going to learn something. You're going to obviously get a glimpse under the hood of, of what makes Walter tick, which may scare you a little bit, but it's, it's, it's really interesting to, to get his perspective on things. Um, but a lot of, lot of good details there. And obviously I'm going to provide links in the show notes for you guys to uh, directly hit that. Now, Walter, you're also, uh, you're also pretty active on social media in specific groups pertaining to pasture pigs. Is that correct? Yes. Um, there are a number of discussion boards um, on there's also on Facebook. There's the, what is it? Pastor pigs for meat and profit. Mm -hmm. And then there's a number of other ones that I've been added to Yeah. where I see a question that is within the things that I know and I may leave comment. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think it's funny. There, there'll be people in, in, and it seems to be some of these hot button topics and, and maybe if you're willing, maybe one of these days we get you back on the podcast to talk about specific things like bore taint and, and all the misinformation or controversy surrounded that. But uh, I, I think it's interesting when, when somebody asks a question on the, on one of the forums or, or there's a, there's a question on social media, uh, it, it's not Walter necessarily having to do the backlink and, and showing it here. We talk about this on our website. It's, it's other people. They're like, oh, yeah, here's a perfect article, article about board tape. Bang. I mean, somebody asked me a question the other day about pigs per acre. And I'm like, here's a perfect article. Just go to, go to Sugar Mountain Farms. Here, here's how he breaks it down. And it's, it's, it's good information to figure out you know, how to estimate how many pigs you should have per acre. So, yeah, it, it's just an incredible resource. I mean, you're, you're kind of like the – the real Wikipedia of pastured pigs and not a bunch of made up stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so what is, what is, what is in the future for Walt Jeffries and sugar mountain farms? I mean, what's the next step? What's 2022 or 2025 look like for you going forward? Well, projects that I'm working on right now is, um, I'm, there's some things I want to do on my cottage. There's another thing that's covered in the, blog is how I built my house um, so I've got some stuff that I'm going to be doing this year on that the arc which is my high tunnel greenhouse I'm going to be putting a new roof on that and the on the butcher shop this year and next year I'm going to be working on building out the slaughter floor mm, yeah and then after that, the next thing I'll be building out there will be the smoking. Hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. My son and I often joke that we always wanted to learn to smoke. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. There's just something so intriguing about that, for sure. That's right. Excellent. Wow, Walter. Well, I want to... I want to close, if I could, with asking a question I ask everybody, and, and I, I don't think there's going to be a simple answer for this from you, but what, what, do, you, what do you like the most about raising pigs on pasture? What, I mean, what really lights your fire about what you do now? Well, specifically the pigs, it's the money. No question about it. Hmm. Um, pigs bring in the bacon. <laughs> they, I can make more money on pigs than I can on any other animal. So... If you want to be specific about pigs, it's the money. Now, I also love pork. Pork has so many things that I can do with it. Yeah. I love cooking. I've been cooking since I was four years old. I learned from my grandfather and my parents. And pork is just, it's, if I had to pick one meat that I was going to do, it'd be pork. Yeah. If, yeah. I, if I couldn't have anything else, I'd go with pork. Um, the, so the, Pigs have the advantage of their omnivores. They have a very robust width to their diet. You can change the pigs. They're very plastic in their genetics. So you can take a group of pigs and you can select the genes that you want. And over oh, 10, 20, 30 years, you can make a breed of pig that you want that does well in your climate in your situation, producing the products that you want for your customers. Um, I love the genetics. I'm a scientist. Um, I've done chemical and electrical and computer engineering. Um, a lot of this, the money that I made for buying my farm came from my inventions mm. in 
back in the 1980s and 90s. And so I like the science end of things. Yeah. That it's, it's a big thing to me. I also like that the exercise I get, I'm outdoors, I'm in nature. Um, I get a full body workout every day. Um, <laughs> people pay to go to the gym. Right, right. I get paid to go to the gym. Right. Yeah, uh, it's funny you say that. Uh, I always joked, my, uh, a good friend of mine was when CrossFit was really big, They, I went into their gym one time and these guys are taking sledgehammers and hitting these huge construction tires. And I'm thinking, man, they pay X amount of dollars a month to go in there and do that and, and they can come, right. come out and split firewood and, and get the same result and actually have something to show for it at the end. <laughs> yep. And that thought right there determines how I do a lot of things. Hmm. I use technology where it gives me advantages that I want. I also use older ways like a splitting mall or a splitting axe when I want the exercise. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Walter, wow, man, I, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Like I said, I, I, I've really just kind of scratched the surface of so many things I know we could talk about, but um, maybe we can save that for a, and coerce you to come back on again some point on down the road. But um, what's the, obviously the website is the best way for people to reach out to you. I know the blog is really where you want to kind of keep uh, the communication going, but um, and then, of course, there's these other Facebook groups that, that people can belong to and, and know that Walter's out there. He uses his same uh, uh, his same uh, avatar on, on everything, so you, you recognize it as as, uh, as his when you go along. Are, are there any other ways people can communicate with you, or, or is that kind of the key area to focus? Those are the two areas. Yeah. Okay. Yep. All right. Well, I uh, man, I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast. I'm, I'm going to let you go so you can enjoy a, uh, a cool Vermont evening and... Uh, and, man, I, 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 I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Great. Well, thank you. Well, I really appreciate Walter coming on the podcast. As I mentioned before, if you want to know more about him, if you, have, for some reason, have never ended up on his website, then you definitely need to go check it out. And I'll put that link down in the show notes. Well, again, if you would like to be on the podcast, by all means, just go to thepasturedpig.com. Use our uh, control. <laughs> Use our contact form and put your information in. And, uh, and we'll reach out to you as soon as possible, get you scheduled. If you've got any topics specifically you'd like us to focus on, um, I've got some really good feedback with our Arco Labs conversation. And I'd like to look into more of those peripheral interviews where we're talking with not necessarily always uh, pork producers, but uh, businesses and organizations and individuals that are on the um, yeah, equipment side, service side of, of the pig industry. It would be interesting to talk to. So if you know anybody or you a company or, or organization you'd like me to try to reach out to, by all means, use our contact form on the website. Give me a tip there. Give me some contact info, and I'll see if I can bird dog any of that, and we'll get them on the podcast. Well, I pray everyone have a good week, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. To learn more about our podcast or to submit topics or recommend guests for future episodes, visit redtoolhouse.com.